Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five personal little things from their life that they treasure and would like to preserve in a time capsule. In fact, they can choose four things that they treasure, but the fifth thing has to be something they wish they could reject from their life and bury in the ground forever. My guest in this episode is the broadcaster, presenter, and, as it turns out, stand-up comedian, Annika Rice, who burst onto our TV screens in the 1980s in the Channel 4 show, Treasure Hunt, which remains one of Channel 4's highest-rating shows ever. She followed this up with her own idea, Challenge Annika, which ran for six series, setting up charitable projects all over the world, most of which are still going strong and, even after all these years, still take up much of Annika's time. So much so that she took a sabbatical from her work in 1995 to bring up her young family and to study at the Chelsea College of Art and to continue her charitable work. She has returned to normal work since, as a presenter and broadcaster on TV and radio, as well as becoming a journalist for The Mail on Sunday, The Radio Times and The Independent, among others. She's even performed on stage. So, let's find out the five things that Annika Rice would choose to put in a time capsule. In a way, her own personal treasure hunt. We'll also find out what her real name is. I hope you enjoy it. Annika Rice, or Annie. I've always called you Annie ever since I first Thank met you. you. It's very strange to use your official name, as it were. Well, you know, it's not even my name, Annika. Yeah, I know. That was equity, isn't it? I think you said. Equity. 
you know, I've always been Annie Riceberry. I was working as a broadcaster in Hong Kong. I was a newsreader and journalist out there, Annie Rice, Annie Rice. And then I came back to um, the UK and started doing Treasure Hunt and Equity were on my back immediately because there was a very ancient actress <laughs> living in Wales called Annie Rice who was really pissed off. <laughs> so I had to come up with a new identity, Mike, which is really weird because you don't particularly want to become Prudence Bloggins or something. No, quite. Well, I didn't anyway. I went through um, so many permutations with them. I said, could I be Anna Rice? Uh, sorry, computer says, no, we've already got one of them. Could I be Anya Rice, Annabelle Rice, Basmati Rice? <laughs> I mean, I, I did the whole gamut of Rices. And then in the end, my friend Gary had a sister called Annika. And I went, that'll do. Yeah. Can't be an Annika hanging around there. No. Um, and there wasn't. And the, the, the sweetest thing is that... Um, there's all sorts of baby Annikas out there who were named after me when Treasure Hunt and Challenge Annika were on. The parents would write and say, you know, we really would love to name our child after you. We, you know, would you mind? Would you be godmother? I mean, I did draw the line <laughs> at godmother because, yeah. you know, it would have been out of control. But there were all these baby Annikas out there who are all now in their 30s. And recently when I did my last stand-up comedy thing at the Backyard Comedy Club, um, my producer, without telling me, invited all these baby Annikas along who are now in their 30s. Oh. Brilliant. Suddenly, I'm in the audience and go, I gather there's some Annikas here and all these Annikas stood up and there they were, these poor children who you know, <laughs> have been forced to have your been name. Forced to be named after me. So but it actually it was rather emotional coming, you know, oh, meeting I'm sure, them. yeah. And their parents who'd, you know, who'd adored you. And their parents who'd come along too. And, you know, quite honest in their lust that they'd had. You know, one dad called Derek just said, oh, I really fancied you. I just wanted my daughter called Annika. I thought, inappropriate. Somewhat, <laughs> yeah. It was all done in rather innocent, sweet, you know, different time, innocent. Absolutely. It was actually innocent. Yeah. Yeah. So, Annie, hang on a minute. Stand up. I know. What the I hell? Know. Well, I know. It, the thing is, I am the master of reinvention. And actually, one of my things that I would like to put in a capsule. Yeah, okay, let's make this your first item. So let's let's blunder into <laughs> the blunder first indeed, one, yeah. which is actually Jeopardy. Jeopardy. I'd like to put Jeopardy in right. as a thought because I think, you know, as a, a part of the human condition is to be out of your comfort zone. If, you know, if we go back to sort of pre you know, historically as a caveman, you lived your life with a lot of jeopardy. Mm. Uh, you didn't know where your next food was coming from, the cyber-toothed tiger. Do you remember <laughs> that in, in history? I've never come across one, no. <laughs> but, I mean, jeopardy and fear and having to scavenge, protect your family, hunt, gather, you know, all those things are part of our human condition. And, and now we're almost so sort of protected and mollycoddled, especially our children. And I have felt this fear all my life, really, because I had a very weird childhood <laughs> I just had such a weird childhood I um I had a mum who was amazing you know any friend who met her of mine thought she was the most amazing human being yeah. but if she was your mother she wasn't quite ticking the boxes because she was born into that sort of um post-war austerity mm. you know married sort of a nice man my dad and found herself living as a housewife in a little village in Wales and was going effing mental. Mm. It just was not her thing. You know, if she'd been born in another era, I swear she'd be prime minister by now, but she was 
you know, very little chance of education beyond sort of A-levels and everything else, or or whatever they called it in those days. What was it called? Did you do A-levels? Matriculation? Or or was it something? Anyway, whatever. The hires. You know, but anyway, education just finished, and then you had to marry someone and become a housewife. And so she was so frustrated about this. So I was born into this household of, of my dad was at work in the building profession, so he was just very busy talking about concrete. You know, and I loved all that and go off with him with my hard hat on and we'd talk about concrete all day. But my mum was just desperate to escape. So I grew up really feeling that the rug was about to be pulled from my feet the whole time because they were so unhappy together. They, you know, how they ever got married, I don't know. And so she was always off doing degree. She reinvented herself. She did a degree. She was always going off to Paris. God knows how she ever afforded any of these things. She was off. Yeah. And so I became the mother of the house. You know, I just became the sort of carer of everyone, cooking the meal. I had a much younger sister, so I had to get her up in the night, you know, change her nappy, then take her to nursery school. Then I'd go on to my school, mm. pick her up at, you know. So it was a very weird childhood and very insecure childhood. So I grew up really feeling insecurity and fear. Yes. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because I just don't think I'd have done anything in my life if I didn't. And I still feel jeopardy and fear. You know, you never lose it. You always think life's sort of somehow against you. Mm. So I think it's a very good thing to hook onto um, in this rather sort of, for our sort of, um, you know, as we do with this amazing birthright that we have in Britain. I think it's good for our kids to to feel this a bit more than perhaps we're allowing them to mm. feel. It's great that you don't want to, uh, because one of these items you can throw away, you can reject from your life. But this is not the thing you want to get rid of. No, because I don't know any other way to live. I'd be so lost because I'm still doing it. Look at me doing stand-up. I mean, that's yeah. fear, isn't it? But, you know, as a, as a child, I used to go shoplifting, <laughs> like a mission. I'd, I'd set off to Croydon to shoplift to get a the buzz and hope. I longed to be taken home in a police car so that my parents would notice me. Honestly, no one noticed me. Mm. I was just a sort of shadowy figure doing very well at school. I was very sort of bright at school, just did everything right. You know, I had to just be Annie who just sort of sorted everything out. Yeah, and then did the cooking. I'm 40. (laughs) Anyway, so I longed to be taken home in a a police car. So I I remember (laughs) in Jean Machine, eventually, I was caught. I put these because I always stole things that I didn't want. You know, it wasn't that I was stealing for me. Usually, it was very oversized bras. <laughs> you know, massive cup size. And, you know, you could practically use them as a school rucksack. Sort of geometry, <laughs> geometry set in one cup and a sort of packed lunch in the other. But this time, I just went for a pair of huge men's jeans. And now I do, and I just remember thinking, "Oh God, I feel today's my luck's in. I'm going to be caught." And the thrill when I saw the security people look at me and I tried to make a getaway down the street and then they seized me and I thought, this is my moment. And and there were people lined up on the pavement outside looking through the shop window because the shop had been closed Mm. while I was being arrested. Police came. But even then, they wouldn't arrest me and take me home. They just said, look, we'll just, this is ridiculous that you're stealing. We're going to give you a caution. Don't do it again. And I'm going, no, take put me in handcuffs, please. (laughs) Um, but no they but but I I was quite clever Mike because um, I thought well they're not going to take me home so the whole 
fun of the police thing isn't going to happen. So I might as well stitch up this bully at school. So this hideous girl called Wendy Method who made my life hell. She bullied me so badly. So I gave her name and address to the policeman <laughs> with a thrill that she was going to have a police record of some kind. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they didn't even write it down. They just dismissed me. It was very quite a sad moment. But that sort of feeling of excitement, I'm afraid. Thank God I didn't go into a life of crime. I, I was, you know, I did stop it after that. Mate, you'd be looking after all of us by now. I know. What if, yes, I'd be a billionaire, wouldn't I? I've gone into a life because I think I'd have been quite a good robber. <laughs> <laughs> the evidence is against you, Annie. <laughs> yeah, you can't even it. nick a pair of men's jeans, for goodness' sake. I know, I know, it wasn't good, but it sort of carried on for the rest of my life. So you know, everything I did from then on, I just went for it because I thought. <sighs> What have I got to lose? No one gives a shit about me. <laughs> I mean, I really right. did feel like that. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to do a sob story. It was just yeah, different yeah. times, you know. It's just we all led in those days six, of childhood in the 60s, 70s, very independent. You know, parents were often quite shadowy fig- figures. Well, they certainly were in my case. Um, so you just sort of, you just went for it. And I, the way I sort of protected myself is I always pretended I was the heroine in the film of my life. So actually, there were all these disastrous things were going to happen to me. It was fine because I was a heroine. I'd be all right by act five, <gasps> which was my security blanket. You've been rehearsing your entire childhood for doing Chan and Janica. Exactly. I know. Isn't it funny? No, I mean, this is why all my things are so connected. But certainly that thing of... Um, not really caring. You know, I, when I when I joined the BBC, I was only sort of 17, 18. I'd just done my A-levels and I was secretly writing to them. I didn't tell my parents, honestly. They were so disinterested. <laughs> what I'm doing. And I wrote to the BBC, slightly elaborated everything, in, you know, my letter. Found I was quite good at an interview and got accepted on um, a training course. And I couldn't wait to get out and leave that sort of childhood in quotes behind and, and get out into the real world and um, sort of not become like my mother in a way, you know, this very frustrated person who he didn't make the most of everything they could. So strangely and vicariously, she gave you an enormously useful lesson. She right? gave me a thing, yeah. Gave me a really huge lesson, you know, because I just thought, this is it, I'll just go for it and uh, join the BBC and then, then I eventually ended up in Hong Kong and, and I was working as a journalist in the newsroom of the English-speaking TV company. And then one day, a newsreader was ill. So I said, oh, I'll do that. Having never been in front of a camera in my life, you know, I just thought, why not? And so I, I became a, a newsreader by default because I was, again, I was I was good at persuade <laughs> people to do something i had no training for and the first night well the first night i was so nervous i actually ran someone over on the way to the <laughs> studio luckily i was only going one mile an hour because there were just so many people in in slow motion this guy just splattered against my oh, windscreen no. and then sank down was he all right he he was all right thank god but i mean i had to arrive at the um studio having just potentially run someone over but the great thing mike is i arrived in a police car <laughs> ambition yes <laughs> eventually <laughs> so i arrived for my first bulletin <laughs> with a police very charming policemen who were very tickled at the thought that you know i was about to miss my first bulletin and then checking it and saying hang on a minute hang on a minute she's got a record <laughs> they've been looking for her she's an international criminal no 
I didn't have a record. Wendy Method had the record. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> your bully pseudonym. Very clever. <laughs> and well, then, how did you get to go to Hong Kong? Well, all right, we'll go on to my second. Oh, is that moving us on? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to put Jeopardy into the time capsule. Should we just put Jeopardy there? It's a very exciting choice, I have to say, okay. and I'm with you on it. I think that actually that fear in life that you then overcome is a marvellous thing. Yeah. I mean, I went, I once went an audition when I lived in Hong Kong to be in tomfoolery, mm. which is all singing, as you know, and very clever, witty singing. I can't sing, Mike, but I just, <laughs> I just went for the audition just to experience because I've always longed to sing. And I thought, it's so sad that I'll never <laughs> get anywhere near singing. So I thought, well, I can always just go and audition and pretend. I'm a lame page. <laughs> and when I, I obviously look quite presentable mm. and you could see the producers were quite exciting as this sort of presentable young lady. I was about 21 by then who could perhaps be one of the, the gang in tomfoolery. And obviously I opened my mouth and I've got a very sweet choir voice because I always used to be in the school choir, but it's a very gentle little soprano voice. It's not a belting out. Mm. hilarious witty song voice and they were just so disappointed they really oh. tried to make it work couldn't get there oh, so anyway sad. there we go i went to hong kong years and years ago uh, early 80s yeah and the thing i remember the most exciting thing we did was we went and had lunch at the run run shore studios oh and, yes do you know them I used to do film dubbing there. Did you? After I, after I finished my news at nine, well, no, <laughs> 10 o'clock, after I'd done my bulletin, yeah. because everyone in Hong Kong has about 84 jobs, you know, you're just there to make money, basically. After I finished that, I used to get a cab, go straight to Run Run Shaw Studios, because dubbing went on quite late into the night for um, kung fu movies that needed to be translated <laughs> into English. So I was always, you know, girl three. And the translation was always a bit dodgy, so I'd end up having to say things like, my sir, you have a mighty sword. Can I hold it for you? <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> How funny. What were you doing there, Mike? I, I was doing a play. We were on tour. And we, we, as what, part of when it, we was went that? There. What year? Could it have been the same year? 84, I think. It oh, no, I, I, was, I was back in the UK by then. How mm. funny. Yeah. No, well, I used to sit there in a little dubbing suite. We used to smoke all night to about <laughs> two in the morning, fagging away with me going, sir, that's a mighty sword. Let me hold it for you. I loved it. It was so, what I loved, again, it was all that fear and excitement of being in a completely parallel universe to perhaps one mm. that your leafy background in leafy UK could have yeah. prepared you for. I, I was all for getting us far away from anything sort of leafy and safe, I suppose. Well, that's about as far as you can get, isn't it? It's about as, it really yeah. felt about as far as I could get. <laughs> How funny. Brilliant. That part of Hong Kong, you know, people talk about their expat life and going out on junks, which are obviously boats. And yeah. That sort of passed me by. I was just always in a grim studio or another grim studio. <laughs> but, you know, having the time of my life in terms of life experience, yeah. and in three years I'd got the experience that, honestly, it would have taken me 10 years to get, 20 years to get if I'd stayed in Britain, you mm. know. So by the time I got back, all my friends were coming out of university and I'd had this extraordinary university of life. Yes. Um, and does that lead you on to your second item? Oh, well, my second item is the World Service. Uh, is that too big an item? No, it's not. A it's, a, it's a very desirable thing. Has anyone ever chosen Nobody's chosen anything no. like it, Annie. It was just 
you know, you always sort of trace back your life and think of those pivotal moments, apart from sort of shoplifting bras and looking after children and cooking family. When I joined the BBC, mm. uh, having sort of slightly, you know, lied my way into this training course, which I loved. It was a two-year training attachment. And after three months where they taught you how to do shorthand, type, you know, lay out a script, you know, whatever, mm. they place you somewhere. And I will never forget or, you know, Miss Weller, who was t- teaching us at the time, who had to place us in places. She sent me off to the World Service. I'd never even heard of it. It was in Bush House, which doesn't even exist now, in um, the Strand, on the Strand, and uh, changed my life. I walked into the World Service, having come from, again, leafy childhood, never really met anyone who didn't like me or didn't look like me or sound like mm. me, to this glorious smorgasbord of the world. Yeah. You know, and I, it was utterly... It, it hit me like a, a slap. I was utterly thrilled for it. I worked on a program called The World Today and sometimes Outlook, which still runs now. Yes. And I remember the utter thrill of being in a studio with a stopwatch and trying to get hold of the stringers and correspondents around the world. And you'd go, hello, um, hello there, is um, Mark Tully there in Delhi? This is London calling. And Mark's voice would come up. Wow. You know, this is before you could just quickly get hold of someone down the line. You know, this was a different sort of, you know, it's like in those days calling someone on the moon nowadays, you know. And Mark Tully's voice would come up in India. It literally thrilled me, yeah. Mike. I can't tell you how much you can tell from my voice. I'm getting quite unnecessary just thinking about it because it was just so exciting to think of this sort of the global mass of humanity rather than the UK, yeah. which was my only experience. And South, Southern England, you know, I didn't really know people uh, outside my very um, sheltered existence, really. And at lunchtime, you'd go down to the canteen and you could choose your section. There was the Indian section, there was the Chinese section, oh, wow. and you could ha- choose your food. So sometimes, because I used to sew all my own clothes because I could never afford to buy any, I used to uh, sit with all these amazing women in their saris and talk about stitching mm. and fabrics. <laughs> and then some. sometimes I'd... Uh, have a little, you know, a bit of Chinese and, and have, you know, and so yeah. I made all these friends um, and I loved all Rudyard Kipling's poetry as a child, you know, on the road to Mandalay, mm. out of China, across the bay, you know, I, I, all those things. It was just like this sort of feeling of this is home to me. This is sort of where I belong. So it had a, a massive a massive influence on me because it made me want to be out there in the world and made me feel very confident about going to Hong Kong, even though I didn't know where Hong Kong was. I I had no idea anything about it. And, um, you know, I was so sort of unhappy with my home life that actually I just bought a one-way ticket in the end after my two-year training course and just went out on an adventure with no job just to just to see what would happen. Amazing. I, and again, I, I'm the heroine in my film, What the Hell. Yeah, you're, what are you living up to it. <laughs> um, and I still listen to the World Service. Mm. I, I like getting my news from the World Service because you st- might start off with a st- story in Malawi or you might start off with, you know, Afghanistan. And Brexit might come, you know, really very low at the bottom. Yeah. And it's very interesting to hear how other countries view us. Mm. It's just a great leveller, the whole of the world service. I really recommend it. Yes, another perspective. They have a brilliant news hour. They have an arts hour. They still do Outlook. 
mm. you know, and it's, it's really precious place for me because I think without that extraordinary experience of getting to understand the world yeah. as a young kid, you know, I'm still only sort of 18 at this point uh, doing my training course. How, how would you have that influence and experience? No, and to suddenly be shown that it's there, in fact. Yeah, exactly. There and there's a chance that perhaps you could join the world. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Sadly, I think now that most of the people who listen to the World Service apart from you, Annie, do it because they like the company of a voice at night. Yeah. So they leave the radio on. Well, we've all been there as well. You know, if I wake up at four in the morning, I'll tune in and it's quite comforting. I've always loved um, stories about incarceration for some weird reason. <laughs> <laughs> this is, oh God, honestly, I sound like I, I should be locked away. Yes. <laughs> no, when John McCarthy was um, kidnapped, Yes. you know, and Jill Morrell, there was that, it was an extraordinary thing when he, when he was kidnapped and Jill Morell, his girlfriend, did that whole campaign to to keep his story alive. Mm, mm. Uh, and I became unnaturally obsessed with that whole story of someone being incarcerated and what it must be like. And then um, Terry Waite was also sort of kidnapped mm. and there was, there was just a whole thing. Anyway, I always remember John McCarthy saying, you know, he caught snatches of the world service or english speaking things and you know there's, there's so many different people who rely on the world service yes and it, i think it really is a big tip for the bbc because it's it, it is truly global they don't try and make it about britain but just put it out on an airwave that you can get anywhere else do you know what i mean yes to show the world really- that we're willing to listen to their voice and also to put our voice out there which i think is it just why yeah. would anybody listen to us why yeah we're so insignificant, I think. Yeah, we really are insignificant. Yeah. And that feeling of insignificance is important, I think. I think far too many people think they're actually very important. Mm. And that their voice should be heard. But yeah, look at me making my own podcast. Oh, no, but that's very impressive. You know, but I think all those kind of uh, angry, loud voices who don't really actually ever say anything of any interest, they drive me mad. Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing is that if anybody wants to listen through all these, they'll find that my opinion varies constantly. <laughs> so if someone else had come on and said they love listening to Radio 4, you'd have gone... You'd love Radio 4. <laughs> Hate the World Service. The World Service what, doesn't compare. Why? Yes, why doesn't the BBC just get rid of that? <laughs> no, I would never no, say that. It would be truly sad if the World Service ever went. And from a personal point of view, it certainly was the springboard for me mm. thinking, I want to get out there and join the world. Okay, then the World Service will be preserved in your time capsule forever. Safe. So what have we got so far? We've got Jeopardy and the World Service. Jeopardy and the World Service. (laughs) They both sound like quiz games. (laughs) I know. I did devise a a quiz game for Radio 4 called Jeopardy, actually. I must must get out again and resubmit it at some point. Well, I think at the moment Radio 4 is a bit desperate. (laughs) So that's two items. Okay. So what's your third item? Okay, we're going to take a short break here. There it was. There will now be a slightly longer break for an advert. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what the third thing is that Annika Rice would like to put in her time capsule. My third is going to be two photos. All right. One is of two Hong Kong Chinese children, Ah John and Ah Pung. Ah John has only got one leg and Ah Pung has only got one ear. And another is of two Romanian orphans. Um, obviously now in their 30s, but who I met when they were about six in the challenge, Romanian orphanage challenge I did, Fiorel oh, yeah, and Mariana. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why, mm. because uh, thank God for photos, really, because honestly, I don't think I'd remember much, because I did so many different things in my 20s, really. Mm. And also I kept copious diaries as a child and a teenager, a whole page a day. Really? Wrote everything down. I think it was a way of tethering myself because the rest of my life was so totally, mm. <laughs> terrifyingly um, not very stable. So I used to write everything down, I think, as a way of sort of grounding myself. But our John and our film, when I when I arrived in Hong Kong and I was doing all these jobs in the newsroom, dubbing at Run Run Show Studios... I got introduced to this children's home called Sandy Bay Children's Home. And um, I used to go there on a, on a weekend or if, if my shifts were allowed me time off. And I used to play with the kids there. They were all sort of abandoned and orphaned and a lot of them had a lot of um, handicaps, disabilities. And our John and our film, I just loved these two little boys. I literally loved them. They were probably three. Mm. Uh, our John with his one leg would sort of career around the children's home on, on a sort of little truck, uh, like a sort of, I don't know, the builder might use to put bricks in or something. It's his only way. Anyway, I was very, very attached to them and really loved them deeply. Um, and I think it sort of reminded me of looking after my sister, you know, mm. and I felt very, you know, naturally I was, a, I felt very comfortable for me. And um, I've got this wonderful photo where I've taken them out to a fast food joint. <laughs> and I'm sitting there as this sort of white 20 year old with these two little Chinese kids with one ear and one leg. And it's just such a glorious picture because we're all so happy and it's just very incongruous with what was sort of really going on <laughs> in the rest of Hong Kong, it seemed. Mm. Um, after I got involved with this children's home, um, it was also the time the Vietnamese boat people who were pouring into Hong Kong mm. post-war um, and, and desperate, desperate people. And they, they had these huge camps in the new territories and I used to go and help in the refugee camps and I was just so overwhelmed at how brilliant these amazing women were at, at 
trying to hold things together for their family when they had nothing, you know, trying to cook on little makeshift stoves. And, and I used to just teach singing. And not that I can sing, as you know, but good enough for the kids. And I used to do sort of games and, you know, with the kids. And, and that sort of has never left me, that feeling of, oh, my God, this is just such a, again, this terrible problem that people don't really know about. Obviously, I was talking about the problem as a newsreader, which was nice. So, so mm. that I could talk about it as a newsreader, but you can't really be that personal if you're reading the news. You can't say, God, I was there today yeah. and it's shit. Yeah, you and just really have to sweet re- report boy. the news, yeah. you know. Um, so I got very involved with two sets of displaced desperate people these little boys at the children's home who had no future Mm. and the Vietnamese boat people who I got involved with but had no way of really helping because I had no power and no voice and no scaffolding no money you know Um, but that was the seeds of challenge all these years on that you know you were talking about challenge that and the jeopardy because um as a 20 year old it's difficult to make a difference you need the power And then the glorious thing was, once I was back in the UK and I'd done sort of six years of treasure hunt, that helicopter program Mm. where I was flying around, I I suddenly had power. TV producers wanted me to work, you know, they wanted me to be on their channel. So I went to Michael Grade with this idea for challenge because I just thought all that money that goes into the budget, for example, of a program like Treasure Hunt, which is such fun and so exciting and, you Mm. know, it costs a huge amount to make. What if all that huge budget went into another sort of program where we're trying to do something against a clock that is completely impossible, uh, relying on all the people in the UK to help us? I, and But the most important thing was harnessing the power of TV yes. so that you've got this, you know, you're using this, this platform in a way that you're creating a great light entertainment program because it had to go out at seven o'clock on a Saturday night, mm. but you're dealing with issues that have never been seen at seven o'clock on a Saturday night. So, you know, refugees or homeless people, Mm. you know, the disability, the projects all helped different sort of communities. Uh, And that's how Challenge was born. And I can sort of trace it back really to those Hong Kong days. And, you know, I I never knew what the challenge was going to be in advance. All I could say to the team beforehand was, I would like to do a refugee camp overseas. I'd like to do a orphanage you know Mm. and so for example we went out to Malawi and equipped a refugee camp out there and you know I remember standing there in this camp and we were just leaving for the airport actually and I was literally taking all my clothes off and giving my bras and everything (laughs) to the to the women there you know because they just had nothing Nothing. so I literally arrived in the airport more or less naked (laughs) um but I was thinking gosh that that's threaded back you know I can trace Trace this moment to that feeling of power. To being a, a, a twenty-year-old, I literally. And then we went out to Croatia post the homeland war to renovate a school in Pakrats. Mm. Um, and all the time, we we felt this terrible jeopardy and fear because there were Serb snipers trained on us the whole time. And even though we're under the protection because it was a Red Cross project, even though we're under the protection of the United Nations, and we had tanks placed there to protect us we felt scared you know and so we all we all wrote home letters to our loved ones in case we sort of never made it back home again so again all these all these things always trace back isn't it strange the things that people feel they need to bring a gun to 
Isn't that weird? Why would they? Well, why I would know. they feel that that was a threat to anything? I know, I know, but but that I know, no. What, uh, but a lot of the the challenges were were really agonising um, projects that mm. we took on, and the most famous is where I come to the other photo I mentioned at the beginning yes. of Fiorel and Mariana is the Romanian challenge, um, which completely changed my life. And I can honestly say thousands of other people, not just the, the children, but all the hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who over the years carried on helping. Mm. You know, it, it was extraordinary, that challenge. There was a woman called Monica McDade, who was a school teacher, and she'd been out to Romania, as a lot of people had in that sort of way of hearing sort of terrible stories from across the mountains that there was this humanitarian crisis in Romania. Mm. People would go out with their vans and blankets. Yeah. And she came back. And she wrote to Challenge, Annika, and said, we found this orphanage, which is just 600 children cooped up like animals, um, mm. no running water, no electricity, sewage running through the rooms, uh, three to a bed, everyone shaved, you don't know how old anyone is. Most people have got AIDS, they're all sexually, emotionally, physically abused. And so we took it on as one of our challenges, which was extraordinary, really, because, you know, it was going out in a slot that was quite meaningful. Um, but uh, the UK responded to it so magnificently. We, we in the end, had to blag a, an aeroplane to get all the supplies and the doctors and the helpers and the builders. And we went to this, oh, Mike, we went to this orphanage. And I've always had this thing on challenge where I've always said to contributors, please don't start crying because I just think it's, yeah. I hate crying on telly. I hate the way everyone just cries on telly, <laughs> especially nowadays. It's become the currency, hasn't it? Yeah. But it, back in the day, I used to say to people, don't cry. Right? <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I can't not cry for this because it is utterly the most shocking, uh, terrifying thing. Uh, the smell of it, the smell of the, just the excrement everywhere and these poor children just rocking who'd never been picked up. Mm. Um, and Monica took me around and we had sort of 10 days to try and make a difference, mm. which obviously we couldn't in 10 days. But the, the thing was that all those volunteers stayed involved with that orphanage and are still involved to this day. You Amazing. know, it's been a real success project. The, we set up an appeal which has raised over a million pounds. And the most amazing thing is Monica, she gave up her life for it. So it ch changed her life so dramatically. She was happy being a school teacher and she spent the rest of her life, well, she's retired now. Mm. So she's now back in the UK, but 80% of her time she spent in Romania. Good That's um, incredible, isn't it? To see something in life, to see something and then recognise, well, this needs to be done. And actually, I'm here, so I'm going to stay. Stay. Uh, but as did so many of the builders, you know, roofers, electricians, plumbers, they finance themselves year after year to take their annual leave to go out and, and help what Monica's set up and what she set up. Because all the in 2000, in the year 2000, all the orphanages were disbanded when the EU were trying to... Romania was trying to brush up its image to get accepted into the European yeah, yeah. community. And so all the um, orphanages were disbanded, but with nowhere for any of these desperate people to go. So, you know, they went into other sort of institutions or just roam the streets yeah. now. Mm. Um, but so what Monica did, she set up with the, the money we've raised these halfway houses. So they built a whole community where a lot of the orphans went on to live. 
so that they could learn skills like farming yes. and everything and and just be protected a bit uh you know and it's not great because honestly these children if if you've not been picked up for the first five years of your life or i think it's even the first 18 months of your life you really really it's almost impossible to be able to become you know form normal relationships and yes. anything because you just don't know how to engage and communicate um but the most amazing thing is when i was last there Biorel, this boy who i've got a photograph of me as a six-year-old when we did the challenge and he's in my arms and uh. he's got a shaved head and you wouldn't know whether it was a boy or a girl or whatever he's just got married to mariana another girl from the orphanage they're now in their 30s <laughs> and uh, it's just amazing i got this lovely picture of brl and i and we're smiling at the camera and holding this picture of me holding him as a uh, six-year-old with sort of tatty clothes and you know whatever um and i really treasure that photograph of him um and he lo- works in the local wood factory now, does as does Mariana. Brilliant. And I just think now, when when Britain has been celebrating this extraordinary year of volunteering, you know, it just takes me back to that time mm. when that spirit was so alive. Yes. Um, you know, there's the guys from the West Midlands Fire Service came out on the original challenge when I was last there. You know, they. There was this guy called Sean and there's Rudy. They still finance themselves every year to go out and It's amazing, help. isn't it? It's it fantastic. is extraordinary. I mean, I suppose you sort of make a decision in life. I'm here, I've found this, and this is so awful yes. that I can't turn my back on it. Well, you can't. I mean, it's 30 years this year that all those challenges took place. Uh, there were over 60 of them, and I'm still involved with so many of the projects. It really is my life's work Yes, because we built them to last. Do you know what yeah, I mean? It yeah. wasn't a, a quick fix. It was no. an absolute, right, I'm going to become emotionally. So when I, when I devised the format, I realised I was defining my life's work in a way. Do yes. you know what I mean? Because it wasn't going to be just, um, you know, like the, the changing rooms programmes yes. and things that were on in the 80s where you just went and no. did no. a quick fix. Cut, this, this, Yeah, yes. by this, this is... This is God sweat, blood, and tears, mm. uh, and uh, these extraordinary, extraordinary. I, I don't have the words to to thank all those extraordinary people who. It was like the Pied Piper; they just followed and helped, yeah. and especially with Romania. So many people. I've got I've got a file that big of people who left their husbands and just went out there <laughs> to live and help. And and I used to always have on the doorstep um, cues of people wanting to talk to me about adoption. And a lot of people did adopt people from our orphanage. And the sadness is very few really could adapt because they, you know, there was one little child who always slept under the bed, just mm. couldn't really deal with anything else. Uh. But the most heartwarming story, Mike, was I was in Oxfordshire once in a news agent and I looked to my left and there was this girl so severely handicapped, which is why I'll never forget her, Alexandra. Uh, she had encephalitis, so her, her brain, you know, her forehead was swollen. Mm. Uh, she was blind, deaf, completely uh, disabled in a wheelchair. And she had been adopted by this lovely couple in Carterton in Oxfordshire. <laughs> and they had chosen her. They'd seen <gasps> the programme. They'd chosen her, the most disabled child that was on that programme, and decided to adopt her. People I are mean, amazing, aren't they? Stop it. No. I mean, I, I just, we wept 
Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Fantastic. Well, you should be very, very proud of it, I think. You know, there's a lot of people who are going to be very grateful you came up with that fantastic idea. Well, the thing was, you know, you often just need a catalyst, don't you? And I just happened to have, at that moment, the the privilege to be that catalyst Mm. because of this power I suddenly had. Yes. So you you feel very honoured and and lucky, and all you hope is that um, you know people's lives were changed by that yes. program and uh, the trust they put in it. You you've just you've just got to keep the integrity there so that mm. they're not putting their trust in the wrong thing. Yes, but I mean? don't belittle it, Annie, because yeah. there are many people who are in that position and have that chance and never take it. Yeah. So the fact that you yeah. you did is uh, is very admirable. Well, it all goes back. That's why all my things for your capsule intermingle, because it's all about jeopardy. Hmm. And in a funny way, it leads into something I want to get rid of. Oh, right. This is your fourth item that you want to get rid yeah, of. Yeah, I might, I might, might chuck this in now. Yeah, do. The thing I'd, thing I'd like to get rid of is melancholy, because I've always, I have a very weird thing. <laughs> God, I don't know why I'm saying all this. Because <laughs> my outward thing is, you know, you think, wow, there's a super confident you know, in control person. And honestly, I am. If you give me any project, I will not rest until I've seen it through. I have such Mm. a strong sense of justice and injustice. But personally, I'm so insecure. And and my melancholy is something I've really had to fight all my life. You know, it started off as a childhood. Because if you wake up, I used to wake up and I'll never forget it, feeling so sad. Mm. It's not depression. It's different from depression. Yes. It's not a clinical thing. So that sadness is debilitating. It's a debilitating sadness that I feel every single morning when I wake up and I have to lie in bed and go, it's fine, because once I'm up, it will go, you know, keep moving, it will go. And I've had to think of devices all my life as a way of sort of dealing with it. Otherwise, I would just lie in that bed all day. And it was, it. Um, funnily enough, there's a, I remember reading Winnie the Pooh to my little sister when I was putting her to bed one night and it was Piglet who said Piglet was so excited at the idea of being useful that he forgot to be frightened anymore Uh, and I've really taken that on as quite an important thing for my life (laughs) Um, that thing of being useful and I really reckon if I ever have to do motivational speeches I, I always say to people just being useful is such a lovely feeling. Just find somewhere where where you could be useful, yes. and you'll, it'll take you out of yourself yes. into someone else's life. You know, you know that that's been my sort of mantra for life. I I keep very busy. I do a lot of sort of swimming in the sea. I create the whole time. I'm always painting or writing. Starting new things all the time. The fact that you went off to art college at yeah, uh, well, whatever age, you know. I mean, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, but it's all down to this terrible melancholy. So, mm-hmm. frankly, if I could put that in a bloody capsule and get rid of it, <laughs> what would I be like? I'd be so happy. I mean, like, it's not that I'm unhappy. I'm very happy now I'm talking to you. But the, there's just an inherent, there's just a sort of, and it, and it comes from, you know. Do you think it comes from your childhood, that sort of waking up and thinking, oh, no, this, what is this day going to bring? Very early on in this chat, you talked about the constantly frightened of what was going to happen because your parents clearly didn't get on yeah didn't quite know there was always that terrible moment on tuesday when the bank statement would arrive and the terrible arguments over that and the you know um there was a lot of 
unhappiness in my childhood and if you've mm-hmm. had that and so many people have unhappy childhoods it seems even ridiculous talking about it i can only talk about my own experience where it, it it's so ingrained in me to not uh for things not to go right for me i expect <laughs> things to go wrong and there's so many trigger points for me all the time where, which make me go straight back to my childhood it might happen this afternoon at three o'clock something might happen where it triggers something and i just immediately feel that that, that scared person again so my great sort of manic thrusting energy to help to reach out is is me being piglet (laughs) (laughs) and then you you just made sure that you were just so needed that you weren't afraid anymore yes yeah notice that and and, yeah no time to be frightened no time to be frightened i've no time to be frightened i've got too many things to do just too busy i've just yep yeah, bye. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, so can you get rid of that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Melancholy. You will wake tomorrow and you will go. What a marvelous day! What shall I do? I would also the other word that's a word that's very good is the word of possibility. I always say to myself, okay, because you know I have very dark thoughts, and uh, I think, hang on, is the possibility there? Oh God, is there any possibility? As long as there's possibility yes. in life, yes which could be just that you're going to see a friend later who will make you feel better Mm -hmm. or that, you know, I don't know, but possibility is a good word to hold on to. As long as you've got a little glimmer of possibility for the next day, it's it's worth sticking around to try it out. Oh, absolutely. But, well, I think there's always that possibility, even in the darkest places. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Okay, we will put melancholy into the time capsule. Thank you. It's gone. Bye, bye. bye. Hooray. Very glad for that to shoot off We're just for the rest of this. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. So you've only got one item left. So there's one more thing that you'd like to put in there. Yes, I think my final item will be what I made the subject of my last stand-up comedy, which is my Madame Tussauds waxwork head. Were you in Madame Tussauds? Well, of course you were. I was in Madame Tussauds. I was the first thing bemused Japanese tourists saw when they walked into the foyer. Me hanging in a jumpsuit (laughs) from a rope ladder, from a rope ladder, with a map in my hand. And when I stopped doing treasure hunt and just moved on to challenge, they just put me in a different outfit different bit of lycra and had a paintbrush in my hand but I swayed over in the right in the fire literally the first thing and really if you didn't live in the UK you'd have been very confused by that figure <laughs> anyway uh, at one point Channel 4 came around to um, interview me about you know the honour of being in Madame Tussauds so I rather smugly did my chat and then they said and how do you feel now you've been melted down no it's like tumbleweed blown across the scene what what <laughs> but i had to pretend it was fine i went oh that's the nature of fame <laughs> but that is the nature but the funny thing was there was then the thing of where does your head go now if you google wookie hole which is a cave complex off the m3 or m5 i've been sunset, there yes you've been there well if you look under madame tussauds wookie hole you will see pictures of row upon row of dismembered heads gathering dust on shelves i mean there's literally everyone from president reagan to to annika rice whoever and me well so someone showed me this photo and i just thought oh my god a it was a gift for a stand-up comedy because there was such an arc i was off to find my head it was like (laughs) we're going on a bear hunt you know i was off to find my head because it was outrageous that it was there and so the whole thing became this 
a sort of slight obsession <laughs> to find my, because um, there were all sorts of rumours coming around, you know, because then I thought, you know, if you watch The Handmaid's Tale, mm. all those heads that are on spikes, where do they come from? Have they got a lucrative trade just handing out money? And <laughs> Ramsay Bolton in Game of Thrones, he's always got a bloody head on his spike. Anyway, it became this sort of um, rather mad way to find out I put, you know I put a thing out on Twitter and there was a very friendly a nice guy called Dominic who said he was 64% certain he'd seen my head at the top of Louis Two Swords in Blackpool which is a sort of offshoot of Madden Two Swords um, either next to Frank Bruno or Nigel Lawson uh, apparently there were hundreds of head, <laughs> heads up there and Joan Collins rang a bell as well and, and then all these things were coming in the whole time um, a friend in Suffolk suggested that the museum at Sutton Hoo is full of uh, waxworks, mm-hmm. the biggest Anglo-Saxon burial site in the country. So am I there? Is my head being there? Has <laughs> it got a headdress on? Am I now Boudicca? <laughs> so anyway, so we, I went through this whole journey to find my head, you know, over several sort of weeks, over months, actually, because I started, for, I wrote the whole thing um, once I'd finished my journey, and I'd say the journey took me four months through trying to get hold of Madame Tussauds. Mm. I used to go up there. I'd be removed by security. <laughs> I was box tourists on the street saying, look at my face. Did you see me in there? Had I, had I, you know, because are, are they using the heads as part of some crowd scene now? You know, I don't know. There was this whole thing, and eventually I spoke to the PR lady at Madame Tussauds. But to do that, we had to book an interview with her. We couldn't just phone, you know. It took me two months to get the interview with the PR person. We then claimed she had no idea. She just said all the heads are all over the place. We probably got some lists, but not quite sure. Of course they know where my head is. Of course they do. And then she had the nerve at the end to say, oh, my sister and I used to love watching you on telly. And I just thought, (laughs) she's got my bloody head. (laughs) She's got it in the cupboard. She's using it as a girl's world, you know. Oh, she's sort of brushing my brushing hair, brushing it, or and yeah, and keeps changing the wig. So anyway, the search for my uh, waxwork head was a romp, frankly. And did you ever find it? Never bloody found oh. it. They get rid of the bodies because the bodies yeah, yeah. are just stabbed. They're fairly covered in clothes, yes. you know. But the heads, I mean, there was this beautiful man called Steve who made me with calipers, you know, measuring every measurement over. A month, really. I tried to get hold of Steve, but I couldn't get hold of him. Mm. But apparently, his next-door neighbours, totally coincidentally, Mike, this is how weird life is. When I was doing my um, stand-up, talking about it, unbeknownst to all of us, Steve's next-door neighbours happen to be in the audience. No. Steve, the guy who made me all those years ago, (laughs) this beautiful young man. So I ended up, so they put their hand up and say we, we live next door to steve so i rushed over with the microphone they said he slept with a photo on his bedside of me as the waxwork now i think they might have been lying mike but it was very sweet of them to say that anyway isn't life funny the way it just goes in circles and yeah constantly my life has been so bonkers i i've really it's extraordinary the things you crammed in it's been a cram. Uh, they, they, I'm hoping that one day Madame Tussauds think I'm worth reviving and they <laughs> manage to suddenly find me on a shelf. I mean, there's always talk about bringing Challenge Annika back, especially now and mm. in these times where, you know, people have shown that they want to reach out. So maybe 
Madame Tussauds will get that waxwork out, yeah. run a few grey hairs through my wig, shove in a lot of lines and ping, <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> no, you might get Steve back. He can do some more measuring. Steve would come out of retirement. Yeah, and you could say start to him, that process all over again. Steve, what an enormous sword you have. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, it's been so great talking to you. Oh, lovely to talk to you, Mike. Really fabulous things you've chosen. I'll put them in there safely in the time capsule for you. Thank you, Mike. Lots of love. Keep very well. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Kenneth Kendall. Uh, sorry, Mike Fenton Stevens. It's a joke there for anybody over 50, like most of my jokes. And my lovely guest, Annie Rice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or iTunes, or your own favorite podcast provider. And we'd love it if you would take a moment to rate us and leave a short review. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you for listening. Kenneth Kendall, honestly. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.